So last time we explored um, what I find a very powerful teaching, which is the teaching called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. It's also called the teaching of the eight conditions, eight worldly conditions, or the you'll see it sometimes in Tibetan tradition called the eight worldly dharmas. And last time at the end we invited uh, ourselves as a community to explore in the context of daily life that teaching. I'm just wondering how many people did that to some extent. Yeah. And so what I'd like to do is to um, talk a little more briefly than I usually do and to leave plenty of time for us to compare notes about what we, uh, what we worked with during the week. And I, I may during the... Uh, the talk that I give also invite um, some reflections or comments from from us as a group. So what I'd like to do is to really uh, cover three areas. First, I want to review, because there are people who weren't here last time, I want to review what that teaching is, this teaching of the eight worldly winds. Uh, Secondly, I want to focus in a little more depth on how we practice with the winds. And for those who weren't here last time, the eight worldly winds are uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, which could be our sense of having a good reputation, bad reputation, and so forth. It doesn't have to be fame in the uh, sense of being on the cover of a magazine or something. It can be just in our very local environments. And the fourth, uh, the fourth set of two is uh, praise and blame. It's a powerful teaching. It, goes, it, it doesn't really mince words. It basically says that these eight winds are what often blow us around. They, as it were, blow us off center. They uh, lead to a certain amount of suffering when we, in a compulsive or unconscious way, uh, try to grab hold of the so-called positive uh, members of the four sets, that is, pleasure, gain, fame, good reputation, and praise. And when we compulsively or unconsciously try to push away what we take to be the more negative members of those four sets, that is, pain or unpleasant sensations, um, loss, um, what I've called disrepute and, and, and blame, So I'd like to review that teaching, then talk about how we practice with it, and third, go into more detail on a question which came up at the end of the time last week, which I thought was a very important one, a very powerful one, which is to, which the question, if you remember, was, uh, okay, given the practice with these eight winds, am I simply to be like a non-acting equanimous blob. What about acting? What about responding? Can I go forward towards what I take to be positive? Does this teaching in some way mean that I don't act? And so in the last, the last part, I want to talk about sort of the balance of working with these winds and acting in a very strong way for what seems helpful, because that can be a confusing aspect of the practice. So it's really talking in some ways about the balance between equanimity, because the practice of the eight winds really points to the quality of equanimity, the relationship between equanimity or balance of mind and action, an action to develop uh, 
in very positive ways. So that, those are the three areas I'll talk about. The review of the winds, how to practice, and then the whole question of action or moving in so-called positive ways. So I mentioned last time that the teaching uh, is, I think, especially beloved by Tibetan Buddhists. Perhaps I, I mentioned last time because there's so many winds in Tibet. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a teaching that you can find right in the early teachings of the Buddha, the term itself that I've called the eight worldly winds, the term itself is loka dhamma. L-O-K-E is usually the word for world. And dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, is, is as many of you know, a word that is, uh, has different meanings in different contexts. Uh, we, we talk about the, uh, the dhamma, the teachings of the dhamma, meaning the, teach, the core teachings of the Buddha. In this context, dhamma has a different meaning. It refers to uh, conditions or factors or, or uh, phenomena that arise in our experience. And so when we talk about the lokadhamma, we're talking, or the eight lokadhamma, we're talking about the uh, eight uh, dimensions of experience or the eight kinds of conditions that arise in our experience. Uh, one translation of the sutta uh, translated the lokadhamma as the vicissitudes of life. The kind of the kind the range of experiences which typically happen in all of our lives, and you can remember that the the teaching in the sutta uh, started with a very uh, powerful question, and that question was, someone who is totally uninstructed in meditation, who's just living as it were more or less unconsciously, experiences these eight winds: praise and blame, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. And, and someone who is practicing, who really has very clear intentions in terms of spiritual practice, also ex- experiences these eight winds. So what's the difference? That was, and, and, the, and the, uh, the Buddha asked the people who were gathered around him, and they say, please tell us. <laughs> please tell us what the difference is. And he goes on to say that for someone who is not practicing, uh, all of these arise, and he gives an example. He says, well, gain arises and for an uninstructed person, and that person, he says, does not reflect gain has arisen. In other words, there's a lack of mindfulness. There's a not knowing that the condition is present. And for that reason, that person, he goes on to say, uh, does not reflect that this is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering, and subject to change. The person does not know the condition as it actually is. When that is the case, he says, gain consumes that person's mind. Or we might say each of the eight conditions consume that person's mind. Gain or loss, pleasure or pain, and so forth. When, when the person experiences gain, there is elation. And when there is loss, that person is dejected. Uh, he, sa- he goes on to say, when there's that being consumed by the conditions, that person is not free from suffering. It's basically saying that when we get caught in these eight conditions, we, uh, we suffer. When a practitioner experiences these eight, something different happens. And again, this is the teaching in, by the Buddha. He says that uh, with a practitioner, gain arises. That person does reflect gain has arisen. In other words, there's some mindfulness, there's some awareness of what's happening. The person reflects 
it is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering and subject to change, that person understands gain as it actually is, and the other seven as well. That for that person, gain does not consume the person's mind. Or we might say, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, do not consume that person's mind. Or we might add, if they do, the person keeps practicing. <laughs> you know, that actually we, we'd have to say that someone who is who is practicing, all of these arise, and we try to do our best with them. But he's basically saying to the extent that there's some degree of unconsciousness, uh, sort of automatic nature to our experience, basically we get caught by these conditions. We think that this is all there is, and we tend to have elation, and we basically we tend to grab hold of what's positive and push away what's negative in a kind of compulsive way. And again, later I'll talk about how that's different from actually choosing to accentuate something that's positive because there's an, there's an important difference. What this really is doing is, in a way, it's unpacking the teaching about suffering. It's saying that, the, if you remember from the Four Noble Truths, the teaching about suffering is that the core of suffering, the root of suffering, is in a kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away of something in experience. And what this is doing is saying, with more specificity, here are eight varieties of how we grasp or compulsively push away. And we can be attentive for them. So how to practice with the, uh, with the eight winds or the eight conditions? This is really the second part of what I wanted to talk about. And... I want to suggest uh, really four ways of working with the, the winds. And I want to give some examples from my own experience, from my own noting of how the winds appeared in my own experience in the last week. And maybe some of us can add to that and we can reflect ourselves. How did these appear for me in the last week? And the four forms of practice or the four, four dimensions of practice that I want to suggest is first to name them. That is, to have some basic mindfulness that they're happening. Again, pointed to in the text by the Buddha. Secondly, explore how we relate to the winds in more depth. What are my reactions? What are my habitual patterns? What happens when someone criticizes me, for example? Do I go to right away to defense mechanism number one? Which might be to say something critical right back to the person? Do I go to defense mechanism number two, which is to sort of emotionally retreat? Do I go to defense mechanism number three, which is to just sit there and be confused? (laughs) Um, And so forth. And each of us may have different measures, but the second way to practice them, and it's actually right at the core of our practice, is to just really see what's there, see how I, see what I do with pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, to really, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, respond differently to each of the eight. Some of, for some of us, uh, some of the eight are bigger than others. For some, of, for some of us, praise and blame, probably for many of us, praise and blame may be really uh, triggering in many ways. For others of us, it may be gain and loss. Some of this has to do with our personal background or what our particular conditioning has been. So the second way of practicing is to really explore what's there, to use the presence of the winds 
as a starting point for practice and for greater mindfulness about our patterns, what, what gets us caught, what's helpful, and so forth. A third way of practicing is to reflect on their nature. And this is where, and this, this can go hand in hand with the mindfulness, but it's to reflect some about the, the nature of the winds. It might be reflect on their impermanence. It might be to reflect on the fact that we may be jumping to interpretations. You know, I, I like the example of, you know, uh, probably if we, you know, we found it's raining today, first rain of the year. If we saw the interpretations, some of us may take this as very pleasurable, some as painful, some as gain, some as loss. You know, it, it points to the fact that perhaps an object in itself or an experience in itself isn't objectively um, a gain or a loss, you know, even though some kinds of experiences may for most of us be, be gains or losses. But is the fact that it's rainy today, is that pleasant or unpleasant? Gain her loss. Should we praise her blame nature? <laughs> you know, what should we do? Uh, and so those reflections can give us some help in practicing. And the fourth aspect of practice is to learn partly personally and partly uh, more generally what really works? How can I be most skillful myself when these winds arise? And it may be to work, especially with the first three, to be mindful, to um, explore, to reflect, and so forth. So what this is saying is that the problem with the eight worldly winds is not the winds themselves, but it's the way we relate to them, that the winds are necessarily there for all of us. You know, And again, in our period right uh, at the end of the sitting, in some ways, today especially, we named areas that were more painful, where there's some loss. And we all have those experiences. So how do we, how do we relate to it? So I was thinking of uh, what I found uh, last week in my own experience, and maybe we can have some, some others add. I was finding, okay, what is there in terms of pleasure and pain? What is there uh, in terms of some of the, some of the others? You know, I in, in terms of pleasure and pain, I found, okay, sometimes I ate good food, sometimes things didn't taste so good, right? Sometimes there were good experiences in my body, sometimes not. Um, for example, um, um, I had some pain from too much email last <laughs> week, I noticed. Too much email, you know, or too much to do leads to a certain sense of being of stress or being overwhelmed. Uh, and so we can really interpret, what were some other notings of pleasure or pain? If you could just say in, in a few words or a sentence, what did you notice during the week that might fit under the category of pleasure and pain? Too tired. Too tired. Tiredness, yeah. Just on an everyday level, what do we experience? Any others? Too many newspapers to read. Too much to read. Stressful work, so maybe feeling in your body, body and in your mind. Certain, and maybe the, the, uh, in your mind you may say, I don't like this, or I wish this would change, almost implicitly. Illness. Illness. Feeling physically uh, unpleasant sensations, yeah. Please. The opposite of what most are saying. Um, a lot of free time, just coincidentally, because that's not normal, and kind of feeling like 
I, I should be doing something with this time, but, but noticing that and <laughs> making a point to not, you know, that shows one of the uh, points that we can point to when we reflect that sometimes things change very quickly, right? Uh, so we can, we can, what, we, what can we do with, with pleasant and unpleasant experiences? Again, we can notice them. We can explore what they're like. And one of the beautiful practices that's actually very informative, I mentioned last time, is simply to sit and do, take a whole sitting and just try to tune in to the pleasant or unpleasant qualities, uh, that are that are there in the moment. What is it like moment to moment? How do I relate to pleasure and pain moment to moment? How can I notice what's there? How can what is what is pleasure and pain actually like? Because part of what we find when we explore the eight winds is that very often we don't actually experience very directly the winds. We work a lot with our ideas about the winds. In other words, we have the slightest moment of pleasure or pain, and we go right into strategizing, right? It's almost as if we have, it's like our radar turns up, okay, we have a report of pleasure or pain here, what should we do? And we we develop some strategy, but we rarely actually say, let me just hang out with that and see what it's like. And so this is a very important aspect of the winds that, and we can look to see the extent to which we actually, what we actually do is we have some you know, some notion that pleasure or pain, gain and loss and so forth are there, but we actually don't really experience it. We rather work with almost like the idea or the report, and then we go somewhere with that. We go into strategizing. And so just to notice what what they're like. We can also notice to what extent do I use pleasure and pain to, uh, to, to what extent do I use pleasure to reward myself? You know, to what extent, or to what extent, do I try to have a pleasurable experience when I am having an unpleasant experience? And I think we all know variants of this. And sometimes it's skillful, and sometimes it's not. So again, the uh, invitation is really to inquire. It's not so much to say, "Oh my gosh, whenever I, whenever I have an unpleasant uh, experience and I'm at home, I head for the refrigerator." You know, and uh, it's just to notice those patterns, or to notice notice that, and to really really work with that. So the the spirit here is one of mindfulness, one of inquiry, and seeing what's there. Why it's important to look at pleasure and pain in the classical teachings of the Buddha. He says that typically, when pleasure and pain arise, we're not conscious of them. And we tend to set in motion a chain of events whereby we grasp, where, where we want the pleasant, we want more of the pleasant, and we grasp after the pleasant. With the unpleasant, we don't want it, we have ideas about it, and then we push it away in some compulsive way. So what is being suggested here is that, again, that can, that can manifest in how we interact with people at work or in our family or community, if, people, if we have something unpleasant that's said, we may just try to push it away. Or uh, if something pleasant, we want more of it. You know? we, want, we want to have someone says something nice about us, we just want more. And so the whole emphasis is to really see what's present, to notice our patterns, and particularly to notice what happens more automatically. One, I, I mentioned this, I think, um, a number of months ago, one teacher uh, named Reginald Ray, who's a scholar and teacher of Tibetan practice, he said that the whole of spiritual practice unfolds 
in the movement from pleasant and unpleasant to grasping or pushing away. If we really go into that sequence, it's a very short sequence that we're experiencing every moment. If we really go into that, we can see that all of spiritual practice is basically trying to work with more consciousness about our tendencies to compulsively, unconsciously grab hold or push away. And so we can really try to just be with the pleasant or unpleasant with some mindfulness. And one of my favorite expressions of this is from a poem, or actually a haiku by Basho, in which he, in a very, I think it's an expression of mindfulness of the unpleasant. Here's what he says. It's very short, so listen carefully. (laughs) Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. (laughs) Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. You get the sense. Do you hear any complaining? (laughs) It's just direct mindfulness, and you can can interpolate or you can gather. But I I love it because it's really a statement of just being able to be present with the phenomenon. Now, he may have acted on it and and tried to, um, the next evening, have the horse... Sequestered in a different place, or or he might have tried to get another pillow, or or whatever. But but there's just the mindfulness, and out of that, the wise action can happen. <clears throat> so we can also look at at gain and loss. We can also look at how we practice. Would it be okay to hold this just to to? I'll just I'll try to finish in a short time. We can also look at gain and loss, and I was just noting. During the last week, people mentioned a number of aspects of gain or loss. When I looked at my own experience, I noticed um, I had some gain. I sold some books. Uh, On on an area, I had a a medical report that was very favorable, which was nice. It was a gain. But I also noticed uh, some losses. Um, A friend had to cancel dinner. It was a kind of a loss. Uh, and I had to cancel something with uh, some meetings with other friends because of um, not enough time. I also noticed that many of us, uh, or I think most all of us, may have lost the uh, the right of habeas corpus, <laughs> uh, which has been around for uh, almost 800 years, and we may have lost it last week through the legislation passed by the Congress. People know what habeas corpus is. It literally means what uh, produced the body. It's the legal right to actually... Uh, if we're um, imprisoned, to actually be charged charged with something. And that doesn't exist anymore, even for U.S. citizens. So it's some serious matters, a serious loss. So again, we can uh, look at, um, and there, I also, there was also a report that the ozone layer around Antarctica is uh, significantly less than it was. They're the greatest loss this year, it matches the record loss. So these are significant losses, and they help us actually to look at Okay, what, how, do, how do we act in relation to that? So partly, again, with, with gain and loss, we want to be mindful, we want to see what the phenomenon is, where our minds go with it, what do we do with gain and loss, how do we work with it, can we open to the experience? And really the same things with, uh, with the other two, fame and disrepute and praise and blame. And I was, again, I was thinking of, um, in terms of these... Uh, having a book out. I haven't had any reviews yet. I'm kind of gearing, will there be praise? Some of there's on the blurbs, there's a lot of praise, but I haven't had any reviews. So I'm kind of gearing for how I work with praise and blame. So very interesting 
experiences. Uh, so what did other people notice in terms of praise and blame, for example? Anyone notice in, in your week? If you could just say in, in a, a sentence or so. Yeah. <laughs> so a young daughter, praise and blame is the currency. <laughs> yeah. Any anyone else notice any any of the praise and blame? Criticism. Criticism from another person. From a, a colleague. From a colleague, yeah. So it's hard to be with, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah. And our minds can go in all sorts of place, directions with it. So again, the invitation is to know that it's happening, to see what our patterns are. And then we can also engage in certain reflections. This, as I said, the the third way of practicing was to reflect. And we can reflect on sometimes how impermanent each of the winds are. Sometimes they last for a while and they, they, they go away. We can also reflect on how they can change quickly. And sometimes we actually don't know whether a given wind is actually good or bad. It's very, very, very interesting. There's a... There's a story, there's a famous story of a, a Chinese farmer. And here, some of you may have heard the story. It's, it's a beautiful one for illustrating uh, a certain need to uh, be careful about interpreting too quickly whether something is good or bad. Here's the story. There was a farmer who had a young son. They found one day that a wild horse had wandered in to their uh, farmyard and they were able to um, bring the horse into their, into their fenced-off area. So their first impression was, oh, this is wonderful. A game. A new horse. We can tame it. It can help us work the land. This is very positive, a game. The next day, the farmer's son was working with the horse. He was trying to tame it. Unfortunately, it tossed him. He fell and broke his leg. Bad occurrence, negative, you know, unfortunate, loss. The next day, the marauding army, a marauding army came by and wanted to take away all young men of age to join the army. But the farmer's son had a broken leg. Oh, very good. Very good that he has a broken leg. And you could imagine the story unfolding another 10 days, right? And it really points to the fact that how do we, sometimes it's hard to know whether something is positive, especially, especially when we take the, the view that we can actually learn from difficult experiences. You know, I remember last week I talked about Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka who told me, I take no experience as a, as a failure per se. What appears to be a failure from a conventional point of view may have led to some learning for me. I may have learned equanimity or I may have expanded my horizons by something that conventionally was known as failure. This is how Rumi talks about that same point. There's a poem that he wrote called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, is his message. In other words, in some ways, welcome whatever you have in your experience. It's a radical position, isn't it? 
Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. That guest may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Interesting perspective, isn't it? So I want to move to the last point I wanted to cover, and then we can open things up, which is that it's very important to look at the question of how, when we practice with the winds, do we, in a way, not become unbalanced and just sort of say, oh, anything is okay, everything, you know, I can be with everything, I don't want everything, I'll just be with the winds, they can blow where they want, I don't have any wishes. Do you 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 know that voice? It's sometimes a way that we interpret this practice. And I think it's a kind of a misunderstanding. And I want, to, I want to talk about that a little bit. Because I think it's really a way of misunderstanding uh, equanimity. The teaching of the eight winds really points to the possibility of being more balanced when the winds come, come our way. Of being able to see into the ways that, that the winds toss us around lead to imbalance by really exploring with mindfulness, with some depth, with the reflection. But that kind of equanimity of being able to be more balanced with the winds doesn't at all mean that we don't want to act in certain ways to bring about certain outcomes. And I think that's where the misunderstanding is. It's the misunderstanding would be that equanimity is just about sort of being distanced, not acting, sitting on the top of the mountain, and so forth. And I think we can get that interpretation that this practice is pointing that way if we only focus on the teaching of the winds. And I think that if we look to the way that equanimity is actually taught, we can get some sense of what a more balanced perspective is. And one of the... I want want to mention two aspects of the teaching of equanimity that are important. One is... As, as many of you know, equanimity is always taught, or it's, or it's maybe not always taught, I should say, but it's often taught in the set that goes along with three other qualities in the teaching of the divine abodes or the Brahma-vihara. It's often taught with the importance of connecting equanimity stressed, connecting it with loving-kindness, compassion, and joy. And this is very important, I believe, and it's a very subtle teaching. It really points to the way that, in a way, we have to balance the qualities of this kind of clear seeing with the openness of the heart that often leads us to act compassionately. In the teachings of the divine abodes, equanimity needs to be informed by the energy of loving-kindness and compassion. Loving-kindness is the energy that wishes well for another person, that wants another person to be happy, to be developed, to reach certain goals, and so forth. Classically, we have the phrases that say, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may your life unfold with ease. And so there's a kind of warm energy that wants there to be development. The same thing with compassion. With compassion, there's an energy that wants there 
that wants the suffering to be transformed, that wants the suffering to be ended. And so this, to me, is very crucial because it suggests that equanimity runs the danger of being disconnected from loving kindness and compassion. That we can have our wisdom, as it were, be somewhat distanced. And this is talked about in another way in the teachings of saying that each of these qualities has a kind of near enemy, a way that it looks like a certain quality, but it's not really. So equanimity has the near enemy of indifference. Indifference can look like I'm really equanimous, I'm really wise, I really see things, nothing bothers me. But indifference lacks the heart, we might say. It lacks the loving kindness and compassion. And so it's a way to think about when we practice with these eight winds, we can really think of this as primarily a wisdom teaching that needs to be balanced with the qualities of the heart, namely loving kindness and compassion, which do point us towards certain uh, goals or certain outcomes. So it's, it's really, it's actually one of the deep aspects of these practices that we work with, which is that we, in a way, have certain qualities brought together which can be seen as paradoxical, that we have the sense of be balanced with everything, don't let anything knock you around too much, and then we say, strive to develop these qualities. <laughs> they can appear to be contradictory, right? And, and I think that both of them are invited by this practice, that when we work with the eight winds, the key that's being pointed to is that we are, as it were, blown around in a compulsive or unconscious way. But we can also act with more consciousness and awareness and wisdom to move in certain directions. And the teachings really invite us to do both. They invite us to both work with how we get knocked around and learn how to, as it were, have a certain stillness and be present with things, but they also invite us to say, it's important to develop wisdom. Work on it. It's important to develop mindfulness. Really put in your meditation time and move in that direction. It's important to develop generosity. It's important to be ethical. Really develop. And so in the teachings, there's really this bringing together of these two perspectives which can sometimes seem to be at odds with each other. It's really the, the, the standpoint of wisdom and the standpoint of the heart or love or compassion. Some of you know the famous statement, and I'll end with this, by the Indian teacher Nisargadatta. He said it this way, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I I am everything. Between these two, my life swings. Yeah, I'm I'm doing it by memory, so it's pretty close, I think. Um, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. In other words, it points to where I'm attached or where I'm clinging. Love tells me I'm everything. Love is more about connection and about moving in certain directions to bring about uh, the open heart. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life swings. So ultimately, the teaching of the eight winds, which is primarily a wisdom teaching, primarily an equanimity teaching, needs to be balanced by the action that comes out of a compassionate heart. 
I wanted to mention that, and I, I really appreciate how that actually came out of our discussion last time. It came out of the community inquiring together. So thank you. We have a little time to explore anything that I mentioned or also to bring up how you might have worked with uh, one of the wins in your own experience of the last week particularly or any other reflection or question. Please. Um, Reflecting on your comments on pleasure and pain and just being in the moment to experience, for example, the pleasure. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> which is, to, you know, to, and if something is good, how can I get more out of it? How, mm-hmm. how can I maximize it? Which already, as you say, is bringing in a strategy. I'm not truly uh, in, in the moment enjoying that. Mm-hmm. And also, um, as far as there's a maximization, and there's also a how can I make it better? Mm-hmm. So if I'm alone and I'm experiencing pleasure, well, wouldn't it be better if I could share it with somebody mm-hmm. else? So again, it's sort of taking myself mm-hmm. out of that moment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that really strikes home those messages. Making a lot of important points. I mean, I think we all know, I think it manifests, particularly in eating, when we sometimes, and you can see this particularly with kids, right? You know, like, once the, the it's like the first moment in which pleasure appears to consciousness, the hand is already planning the next moment. <laughs> and there's actually not, like you're saying, there's actually not much direct experience there. It's a constant strategizing, how can I keep this happening in the future? Which actually, as you're pointing out, doesn't really involve so much present experience. And it actually may not even, um, may not actually even be that pleasurable. It's more like the idea of pleasure. It's interesting, in some calculus, isn't it? It's interesting. Please, uh, Nancy. practices that um, I do with kids, and I just thought it's almost like a Buddhist practice, but we have them draw like a gingerbread man outline and mm-hmm. then pick a feeling and assign a color to it, and then they draw in their body where they notice that feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's all just about noticing. It's not what they do to shift the color or get it out mm-hmm. of there. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And, and so they, they learn something about just the ability to know what's happening inside, right? So, cultural revolutionary here. <laughs> <laughs> Any other reports of your own explorations? Anyone work with praise and blame? Okay. Please, yeah. Yeah. Um, it relates to praise and blame. Yeah. I have been, um, I needed, I said to my children and to my husband, I need a two days off mm. and meditate and go out of the house for two days. And um, so I did book myself in a hotel in Sonoma for one evening, but I had no plans for today. Mm. Last night I went on the internet looking for drop yoga someplace. I couldn't find it. I was exhausted going to bed. 
I never ever come this way. I always go by the beach. I had no idea this place existed. <laughs> I had no clue. I, got in my, I tell my husband I cannot take the kids to school because I have a class. I did not know of this. Because I, for whatever reason, um, from, I wanted to bring better to my house. I wanted to improve the feelings of particularly uh, praise and blame. Mm -hmm. And so I got in my car and I said, I have nowhere to go. I don't know where I'm going to go. I said, I'm going to go to the beach. But I didn't go. I turned my car and drove <coughs> that way. So when I saw the the place, the rock that they says to me, I don't even know the name. <laughs> <laughs> so much and <laughs> yeah and uh, and you can feel welcome to uh, even the weather is not what it was yesterday but but feel free just to walk around and stay here as long as you want yeah so um, yeah I'm tempted to say uh, praise be <laughs> So thank you and, and welcome. Please, Elizabeth. Um, I've been noticing this week how often I um, degradate myself, you know, sort of mm. say, oh, that was stupid. Mm. Boy, are you dumb. Why did you do that? Um, but now I'm kind of noticing when I do it. Yeah. So I'm making more uh, point of saying, oh, I'm blaming myself again. Mm -hmm. There I go. And... Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, once I I was naming it, um, then I was starting to notice all the times when I could praise myself. Mm -hmm. And it's really um, interesting how often, more often, I blame myself than I praise myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm, work, I'm working on praising myself more. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you for letting us know that it's it's, um, it's deep and it's hard material, mm -hmm. you know. And how many people could relate to what she was saying? <laughs> because it's it is deep, and I think it, I think it's great also to point out that the uh, praise and blame is also internal. There, I think there are a lot of things we could take from what you said. Part of it is just that noting. We can notice how the um, there is a certain voice that often is almost beneath usual awareness that is that may be blaming, and so that's where the mindfulness is so crucial because we can really, as it were, see that which has been more hidden, and and, and bring that to awareness. In itself, it can be uh, it can be hard. It's you know the as it were the path of mindfulness is not this linear path where we just notice more and more and get more and more aware. We can sometimes notice things like that and actually blame ourselves for all that we're noticing. And so, uh, really, and so it's actually a subtlety. That, and, and often, oh, I'm noticing this, and then we blame ourselves for how much blame there is. And that, 
and sometimes in our minds doesn't count. We don't notice it. And so it's important when we're bringing more mindfulness to, to this range to, to know that we can sometimes, uh, in there being more awareness, we can actually tune into some of the ways that it's hard or there's some suffering. And, and an area like blame or self-judgment is just such a big one in our culture. It, it's huge, you know, and I, I think you know I've been working with uh, monthly groups on the theme of uh, judgment for several years now. And it's, it's such a powerful uh, area, especially, I think, in our culture. And, and so that, that was one point. And then the other, the other point was that I, I, I liked the way that you were um, being skillful by going to praise, or we could call it appreciation. And this points, again, to some of the subtleties of this teaching. This isn't to say that we should never praise ourselves because praise is one of the eight worldly wins or, or not appreciate, but it's really a question of, I think it's a question of our intention and how conscious it is and how skillful. I think it can be, I was, as hearing you, I was thinking it can be very skillful to appreciate or, or, and maybe the, the sense of praise, as it's translated, conveys a sense that's a little out of balance. And we may want to use our own words, but some kind of appreciation that can really, as it were, balance our psyches. Some can be very, very helpful. And so I think that that's, uh, um, I think that's important to bear in mind when we, when we work with this teaching, that the, the emphasis is really on what's our intention, how are we, you know, how aware are we, how caught are we, and that it can be sometimes very, very helpful to, as it were, have something pleasant happen, have, some, have gain, have, as it were, um, I don't know if you want to call it fame, but some kind of good words about oneself or, or praise or appreciation. That really, the, because these are always happening, we can, we can be skillful about our use of them whether it's to children or to ourselves or to other people. And so that's, this is, a, as it were, a subtlety or another dimension of this that we, that we could explore further. Yeah. Please. Um, my uh, father died a couple of days ago. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, um, my is very angry. Can't hear so well. I said, my family is very angry. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it interesting how we can use the process of mindfulness <coughs> to create space yeah. for someone to express yeah. intense feelings yeah. and just want to lash out and almost pick up a gun and shoot the person that he thinks is responsible for his father's death. Yeah. And she's not. She was there with him until he died. Yeah. And by sitting with him and allowing him that space without saying, oh, don't blame, don't criticize, yeah. don't be angry, he was able to come to a place where he, he got very quiet and he said, I'm sitting here looking at pictures of dad. And it was beautiful. I, I've, never, I've never seen my brother, and it was over the phone, but I've, I've never experienced him work through that horrible anger and blame that he experienced. Yeah. I, I believe it 
is because through what I learned last week, I was able to sit with him and not not try to own it or change it or fix yeah. it or do something with it. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate yeah. the time that I've been here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, as it were, inviting us in some on this very intense and intimate experience. And remind me of your name? It's Elizabeth. Elizabeth also. So, um, so there's, again, a, a lot in what you said, I think. And, and I, I think, I, think um, I probably can speak for everyone in thanking you for, for sharing that. And it really, uh, it really does point to the way that these winds are in themselves not not good or bad, but it's really how can we be wise and compassionate in response or skillful. And, and this quality of um, giving the space, giving and mindfulness is another term we might say for giving the space so it can be what it is. Again, there can be moments in which we, it's important to act, but here it seemed like the action was a kind of giving space for it to be there. Uh, and you know the uh, and the I'm sure the emotions will will keep moving. Yeah. You know that uh, I think anger is very very common. Uh, almost um, before there's grief, it's quite common I, I believe uh, in in this kind of situation. And so uh, wonderful that you could give the space and you know because you could imagine the opposite right? Yeah. You could imagine being reactive or thinking this wasn't appropriate and not giving the space for that anger and where would that have led, right? Uh, further suffering, so. I don't think I would have responded to him that way if I hadn't been here last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you and, and um, yeah, may, may your continued um, skillfulness be, uh, be really helpful for the situation. Maybe the last last one, and then we'll then we'll close. Uh, I've been struggling with, uh, I guess, a few of them: uh, gain and loss, and having a, a hard time financially. Uh, it cogs right into praise and blame, and fame and disrepute, and <laughs> <laughs> pleasure and pain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but as we're talking, what it what occurs to me is sort of relates to what both Elizabeths were saying, um, how you talk to yourself and uh, the timing, uh, because I have a way of finding ways to criticize myself by thinking, oh, well, now is when I'm supposed to be generous. Well, I felt like so needy myself that the idea of being generous and how I could be generous was just another way to lash out at myself that I just didn't feel generous. I felt needy. And finally, you know, all the voices just going back and forth and and, uh, making me feel worse, I finally just started paying attention to the in and out of breathing. Mm and the sense of being connected just to life, mm-hmm. just taking in and giving out and just paying attention to that and mm-hmm. just quieting myself yeah, that way. Yeah, it's beautiful. Just really coming back to the basics and 
It's almost as if the winds were swirling and that it took to really uh, practice with the winds, took that coming back to some simplicity and stability mm-hmm. to, to be able to work with them. So, and I also love the way you talk about sort of the, the multiple, the multiple wind, <laughs> how should we say, the multiple wind attack. <laughs> it's almost, it brings up images almost of uh, being in one of these incredibly windy areas where the wind's coming from like four directions. Mm-hmm. Right, and we're just in a swirl, and 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 you're right. It's in those situations just to find some stability, because it's sometimes hard to know what's happening because the winds are so much uh, present. And and also, I, I love the way you're pointing to the way that the, these winds or the conditions are interrelated, mm-hmm. that one can lead very quickly to another. And uh, so again, there's there's so much in in um, what you're reporting and what I think what other people are exploring. Um, so thank you. <laughs> do you want to look at this another another week? Yep. And I, what I can do is I can weave in and bring in essentially new material. It seems like that sense of the balance of being with the winds and also acting. That It feels like that was, my, my sense is that that could use some more attention mm-hmm. as to how they, they're balanced. How do we both have that sense of space and balance? And when is it important to act? I mean, something, Elizabeth, you're very much right there. We're like, when do we give space? When do we let be? And when do we act in relation to this? When do I just try to see what's there? And when do I really, as this Elizabeth was saying, when do I give appreciation or or give praise in in that sense? Does that sound, does that resonate with people to... If it doesn't resonate with you, you you may be experiencing one of the other winds. <laughs> uh, are there any other suggestions for for anyone else? Want to suggest may add to that in terms of next time, please. I'd like to suggest the the there's the inner work, and then there's how we relate externally to yeah. people who may not be as familiar with these concepts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. So action in, in that sense as well, in terms of how you bring into the world, even how you communicate. How you communicate, how mm-hmm. you behave, useful ways of behavior. Okay. So we'll call this applied eight-worldly wins practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so please um, give attention to how these appear in your life. Work with what tools seem helpful to you. And if you want, take some notes and bring them back. And we'll have a, again, a, think of this as a joint community inquiry. Um, does that sound good? So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute to finish. So letting be present, what was helpful from the morning very possibly related to the themes of the winds, our responses, but it might be something totally separate that just came to you. This might have spurred some some other kind of insight or understanding. And if that's the case, let that be present.
If there are any intentions which come out of the morning, let that let those be present as well. For today, for the next week. So we close, as we usually do, with the traditional dedication of merit. We offer the fruits of our time together outward into the world for the healing, the benefit, the freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.